The content and opinion shared in this podcast represent the experiences and viewpoints of the host and his guests. They do not speak on behalf of Amazon.com, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Hi, Owning It fans. This month for our episode of Owning It, we'll be speaking with Kate Germano live and in person for an interactive audience experience. We hope that you'll get a lot out of the conversation and forgive us for any of the background noise that you might hear during the conversation. Happy listening. All right, so hello and welcome to Owning It, Leading by Being Unapologetically You, where we talk to managers and leaders about what it takes to lead with authenticity in order to transform organizations, teams, and themselves. Today I'll be speaking with Kate Germano, a retired military officer with broad experience as a coach, facilitator, and public speaker. Following a very successful career in the Marines, Kate was chosen to lead the all-women 4th Recruit Training Battalion. After a tumultuous experience with some spectacular results and a very public separation from the Marines, Kate left the military and embarked on a journey of self-reflection. Her thirst to improve her leadership and better serve others led her back to school, where she completed certifications from Georgetown University's Institute for Transformational Leadership. Kate's exploration of her own emotional intelligence helped her understand that true leadership requires vulnerability, authenticity, and appreciation for the perspectives of people from all different walks of life. Kate's writing on national security, gender, and leadership has been widely published in national media outlets, including The New York Times, Time Magazine, U.S. News and World Report, and The Washington Post. She's been featured on NPR, Vice News Tonight, C-SPAN, and the PBS NewsHour, and is the author of Fight Like a Girl, The Truth Behind How Female Marines Are Trained, co-written by Kelly Kennedy. Kate is dedicated to helping others live the Marine maxim, know yourself, and seek self-improvement. Welcome, Kate. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you. All right, so... This show is really about leading with authenticity, really embracing who we are and how who we are leads into what we do. So I'd like to start with a little bit of self-reflection and a little bit of vocalizing from you about the identities of Kate that are most prevalent for you or what's most top of mind in kind of your day-to-day interactions or how you move through the world. So the interesting thing about that, Matt, is that I think my perception of my identity has changed over the years. I think if you'd asked me that question five years ago, the first thing I would have started with is I'm a strong woman and I'm a strong leader. And I think because of my experience in the Marine Corps and because of what I've learned through the programs at Georgetown and my own experiences um, outside of the military, um, is that what I value is very different from being just a strong leader and a strong woman. So I'm a disabled veteran. I am a daughter. I am the proud partner of Joe, who hopefully you get to meet here someday. Um, And I'm uh, trying to be just a better person. And so for me now, what I'm really, really passionate about is just understanding who I am and how I show up in the world so that other people learn from my mistakes. Yeah, appreciate that. Um, Two quick reflections. So the first is that I really like the idea of our identities changing over time. So it'd be interesting to get your perspective on how that's shown up in the workplace or in the things that you do. Sure. And the other part of that that I um, I noticed as you were talking about that, as you talked about first, you added an adjective hmm. to the first parts of those identity, which was strong. So mm-hmm. you said, I am a strong woman. I am a strong leader. And then in the transformation, that was removed. Mm-hmm. The strong didn't come out in the second piece of that. So maybe some reflections around both of those things. 
Yeah, I mean, I'll start with the strength thing. So much to my detriment in the military, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with sort of military leadership, if you were never part or knew someone who served, uh, we have a very hierarchical organization and it's founded on this concept of strength is the number one characteristic that you want to emulate with your people. And so what I learned uh, the hard way is that the idea of strength as a woman uh, is very different in the way that it's perceived by others. Um, and not only that, I didn't value strength as a personal value, which I think showed up when I was interacting with others. So I was basically being something that was not authentic to me, feeling like I always had to be the tough strong, the fastest, the loudest person in the room. And so I learned over time that while I felt I had that to be that way because that was sort of the military hierarchical way of being and leading, it didn't resonate with me as a person. And that's sort of what led to my transformation after I left the service, just really understanding what was important to me personally. Um, so that, I think, answers that question. Yeah, I had a, um, as I, this is in the first couple of pages in, of your book, Fight Like a Girl. Um, you sort of start with, there's this experience where you've been given this position. It's really late into your military career. We later go on to find that this, you were sort of thinking about this as your last hurrah in the military. This was kind of how you were, gonna, you were going to, you were going to exit um, yes. and have a second career potentially after that. Right. But one of the things that you describe, and I think it might be page one or page two of the book is that. You came into that knowing that you were going to be leading or training a group of women, mm -hmm. and there was quite a bit of language around all the things that you were no longer going to be. Yeah. Um, I'm no longer going right. to demonstrate resting bitch face is right. one of the things that you right. said. I am going to be a ray of sunshine. Um, and then in the very next page, so page two of the book, you talk about how your role with these women that you were going to be leading would be that they could embrace their more authentic mm -hmm. self that you wanted to be different, but also your goal was to make them more of who they were. So can you kind of reconcile that maybe for me and how do you how do you bridge the gap between maybe those two? Yeah, things? so you talk about polarities and you're interested in sort of the opposing forces. I think that those were the opposing forces that I was struggling with. So up until the point that I went down to Paris Island, which is the only place where we make female Marines, um, that's the unit that I was in charge of. I think my time in the Marine Corps had always been such that I had benefited from being perceived as very strong and very direct and very aggressive. And I think because by that time, I was about 15 years into the military, I was working with uh, mostly men in leadership positions who were much older than the men that I had previously been working with in leadership. And so I think what I was struggling with when I got to my new unit was that there was a generational gap in terms of the way that I uh, perceived the benefits and detractors of strength and the way that they did. And particularly if you look at it through a gender lens, which I was not used to, um, I had no idea that there was this tension between um, being a strong and domineering and aggressive woman and uh, the negative perceptions that came with that with the older men with whom I was working. So when I got to Paris Island, I was um, battling between how do I present myself to my Marines as a leader, as a kind, as a compassionate leader, and how do I come off to my leadership as a strong and independent and aggressive woman? 
And how do I straddle that line so that my Marines feel like they can connect with me? And that was really where I learned a lot of hard lessons about myself that I continue to learn today. Yeah, as you know, I have a linguistics background, so I'm pulling in on the <laughs> language that we're using, specifically the adjective. So again, you you described the way that you were showing up in the world. You used some, what we maybe consider some judgmental language around I was domineering, mm -hmm. or um, and I would assume that that would probably be maybe how you felt that you were being perceived. And then also when you were describing, hey, so how I sort of showed strength, you used the word aggressive, which is like, you know, as a man, I'm often told like you never call a woman aggressive, but you actually just owned that right then saying, hey, I'm aggressive. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that as well. Well, I mean, I think the challenge that we all have, regardless of the sector that you're in, whether it's the government or it's, you know, the corporate sector, the challenge that women have straddle those lines, right? So um, we struggle to be our authentic selves because we're given a model for leadership. And when we try to emulate that model, being strong and aggressive, we have faced a double blind, which was exactly what I faced when I started working with very senior leaders in the, the Marine Corps. So I really, um, when Kelly and I were writing the book, one of the things that was very important for me to point out towards the latter part of the book is, you know, these challenges that women face, they're, they're pretty much universal. It's not a military thing. It's just that it's exacerbated in the military because when you when you start in the military, you're given one model for leadership. And it is that if you're aggressive, that's a positive. It's if you're determined, it's a positive. But what women find after they serve for a number of years, and I'm generalizing because not all women face this, but most do, is that you reach a point where that's no longer considered acceptable for a woman leader in the military. So it's how do you bridge the gap between who you want to be versus how you're showing up and what's rewarded in the military culture. And what's rewarded in the military culture, much like with the business sector, it's very different if you're a woman or a member of another minority group. So what would you think would be, so what I'm hearing, and, clear, and feel free to correct me if I'm, I'm not articulating this correctly, is that to sort of raise up in the ranks, you know, in, in most corporate cultures, be promoted, mm -hmm. um, get higher levels of responsibility. You felt you had to emulate a certain style of leadership that was pretty prescriptive and maybe not as authentic to who you are as you would have liked. Mm -hmm. When you rose in power, so when you got closer to the decision makers, um, the real power, that didn't work anymore for you. Right. What was the disconnect? Why do you feel like that style of leadership that you'd sort of grown up in the military mm -hmm. learning and trying to emulate all of a sudden wasn't okay anymore? So I think it, a lot of it had to do with generational models. And when you just, I'll give you some background on the Marine Corps specifically. So it's the smallest of all the services. It is the service that likes to brag about having the highest standards. It is the service that leads all of the other services despite being the smallest in sexual harassment and sexual assault. So there is a culture built on the machismo of being a Marine, but that cultural model is only applicable if you're a man. And as a woman, as you know, you're coming up through the ranks, you're trying to find a way to fit that mold because it's what's rewarded. And if you don't demonstrate those qualities, then you won't rise up through the ranks. And so it almost becomes a vicious cycle where uh, women struggle to really be authentic and be who they know their values want them to be. 
and also get rewarded so that you're coming up through the ranks so you can get into the position of power. So I think part of it is generational, um, and I think part of it has to do with the very unique culture of the Marine Corps, which sort of is, of all of the services, it's probably the most extreme in terms of the way masculinity is viewed as a positive. One of the things that I'm thinking of as well is uh, to provide a little bit of, I'm not giving too much away because, again, this is in the first few pages of the book, but... Um, I'm starting to think that's all you read. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you want me to start quoting it, then <laughs> I've, I've read it so many times. Um, so one of the things that um, the, the book is really talking about is about your journey of having this new experience, but also being, for most of us, what we would consider fired from, yes. from that role. Yes. Um, and one of the things that I read, you know, as I was reading your bio is that you actually had a high level of success in terms of results. So the things that you were tasked with doing, you not only attained, but you sort of like kicked those yeah. goals butt, right? Yeah. So like you really, really had a, a high level of result. So for you, what was that like for you in terms of like, hey, I'm, I feel like I'm doing the thing that I was asked to do. I'm meeting the objectives. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hitting the goals, but also with a high level of scrutiny that ultimately all you lose your lose your job yeah I, I it was exhausting um so again for those of you who aren't familiar with the marine corps it not only is the smallest service with the fewest women but it's also the only service in the entire department of defense to maintain segregated boot camp for men and women so when i say i was leading an all-woman battalion i was leading the only all-woman battalion in the entire department of defense because of the cultural restrictions the marines had placed on how we trained women so in my view, as we started to look at data, because I'm a very data-driven person, I use data to sort of uh, shape how I want to think about improving. In my view, I was thinking, okay, I'm gonna use data to demonstrate what we can do to make our female recruits tougher, faster, and stronger, so they'll be tougher, faster, and stronger Marines. And in my limited thinking, not considering the context and the culture, uh, I'm thinking, well, how could anybody argue with that? You know, how could anybody in the nation, we're tasked to defend our nation. So why would anybody argue with women Marines being stronger, faster, tougher? What I didn't understand was I had no organizational savvy. I had absolutely zero uh, intelligence when it came to understanding the culture of the organization and the perceptions that the men kind of wanted to maintain. Because if we make women tougher, faster, and stronger, then what does it say about me as a male Marine? So that was what I struggled with. And then you talk about cognitive dissonance. I mean, that's the only way that I can characterize it is I would go home knowing at the end of the day, we were doing all the things we needed to do to make the Marine Corps better and stronger. But I was hearing from the leadership that I was being too hard on my people, that I was being uh, you know, too direct, too demanding. And so you know, over time, it's exhausting. I literally would go home at night and think, wow, I, I have no idea what's happening here. And one of the things that you talk about is potentially a theme within the book is that not only were you sort of fighting the expectations that maybe the leadership mm -hmm. men within the military uh, might have of female Marines, but also the expectations that female Marines had of themselves. Absolutely. So when you yeah. just described you know, asking for more of the female Marines, reconciling that within themselves of you should expect more right. more from yourself. Right. Can you walk us through a little bit kind of what was the problem that you actually walked into? What did you see as the opportunity? And then what were some of the actual methods that you went through to get the results that you did? Sure. So the biggest thing that worked for me 
up to that point in my career was relying on hard data so that we could extrapolate trends and identify areas that we needed to address and improve. So when I got to Paris Island, it was no different. That was the first thing I did was I pulled 40 years of data um, demonstrating how the female recruits had performed in all these different categories from academics to physical fitness to the rifle range in comparison to their male counterparts. And so the data right away painted a picture that even though we, in the Marine Corps, the leadership would say, no, 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 there are no disparities between how we treat men and women, there was no arguing that in 40 years worth of data, we were demonstrating the women had never once in any single category risen to the same level of their male counterparts, even academics. And academics was an area where everybody assumed women would do better naturally. So when you're hit in the face with that data, and you're trying to think about, wow, why would it be that the women have consistently underperformed? Then you're stuck really having to acknowledge the cultural issues within the service that you've sort of dedicated your, your life to. And that was a really difficult moment for me. So it was easy to implement changes, bringing in my Marines for their input on where we should start. We started with the rifle range, and within eight months, the women were shooting as well as the men for the first time in Marine Corps history. That was easy. What wasn't easy was identifying the cultural stopgaps that were preventing us from changing the way women were perceived by their male counterparts. So we were able to make progress historically in the different categories for performance for the female recruits, but we were not necessarily able to change the culture. And that was the hardest part for me. I think in my own experience, one of the things that I sort of rely on, and again, this is why I'm really interested in this topic, is that the results speak for themselves, right? Yeah. So you've mentioned quite a bit, yes, the results are important, but doing that within a very specific cultural context is also important. Yes. So as you've probably relived this experience multiple times in your mind and thought about what I, I've done this differently, what would you have done maybe to get those same results, but also done it in a way that was appreciative or leaning into the culture in which you found yourself? My favorite subject. So uh, first and foremost, understanding the brain science of change leadership. And for me, after I attended Georgetown, it was transformational to really understand how our brains respond to perceived threats. So understanding that when I came into my unit and I had Marines there who'd been there for years and were getting ready to leave, those Marines had been told consistently that they were successful. The men on the base consistently said, look, you've got recruits graduating, you're doing great. When I came in, imagine me coming in then and saying, hey, look, there's data to show we're not doing things very well. What I failed to recognize was how they were receiving what I was saying. So I recognized very clearly afterwards that I needed to have more empathy and I needed to have more compassion in how I was delivering that news. And then in terms of the organizational constructs, understanding how when organizations face diversity challenges, how there's a spectrum where they fall and understanding how to leverage communication skills in a way that doesn't cause, again, the threat, the amygdala hijack in our brain. You know, I had no idea how I could make my leadership understand why it was so important for us to make the change. I just thought if I said it loud enough and hard enough and as many times as I could, that they would come around. So now I know that those, those types of messages are not always received well. 
You talked a little bit about, I think, managing down so the people that were reporting into you or within your chain of command. But in the book, and this this shows that you know I did read cover <laughs> to cover. Um, one, I guess, potentially who we might consider the villain of the story is mm. Colonel Haas. Am I saying that right? Haas, yes. um, yeah. who was your direct supervisor. So, um, talk to me a little bit about maybe some of the things that you did to manage up, um, other than maybe just saying, you know, if I say it loud enough or I say yeah. it hard enough. Wow. What were some? Uh, talk to us a little bit about that relationship. With your well, supervisor. I mean, to be fair, I think I was the villain myself because I, I thought if I hit him hard enough. Over and over and over again, he would see my way of thinking. And I, I don't think he was a bad person, but I do think I was my own worst enemy because I didn't see what's the definition of insanity, you know? I didn't see that when I did the same thing over and over and over again with him that it was causing him to flee um, and think about how he could get rid of me to negate, you know, what I was saying we needed to do. So I think I don't see him as the villain as much as I see him as being human. And because I missed the human dynamics of how we react to change, I missed a golden opportunity. Would it have changed the outcome? I don't know, but at least I would have known that I was managing up as opposed to not managing up at all, which was essentially what panned out. One of the things that you describe in one of your very first interactions with Colonel Haas was um, he gave you this feedback, which is, I prize harmony among my staff members above all else. So he gave you that piece of feedback. There was also a piece of feedback, and I'm assuming that Brigadier General Loretta Reynolds is his manager? She was. She was there for about two months after I got there. Okay. And she gave you this feedback, which in in the book, you're actually highlighting this as a potential contradiction. So Colonel Haas, who's your direct supervisor, says, I prize harmony among my staff members above all else, and then Brigadier General Loretta Reynolds says, go with your gut, never back down if you think something is right. As the reader, I interpreted this as you sort of experiencing some dissonance around these are conflicting messages. I'm wondering, you know, as I think about it, I think that there's an opportunity to find balance between those two where you can do both. Mm -hmm. Um, So talk to me maybe a little bit about is there a way to have harmony and speak your mind and disagree? Yes. I I mean, geez, this was the biggest lesson I learned. So, but this goes back to the challenge of separating yourself from the idea that you're the strong woman leader. So again, cognitive dissonance means you know the way you are showing up to others is causing them to be alarmed. But you also know that the qualities that you're demonstrating are things that are making your male counterparts get promoted and be successful. And so how do you contend with that disconnect? So I believed that I've grown up thinking a little bit of conflict is good because a little bit of conflict is where we have the best ideas. You know, they, that is what causes discussion, some of which is very passionate. But the challenge that we have is if we don't know how others are receiving what we're throwing out there, then we're missing the whole emotional aspect of leadership. And that was really it, is I felt like I could get people to do what I needed them to do by getting a certain amount of buy-in. But at the end of the day, I also felt like I could say, this is what I'm saying we need to do and we're gonna do it. And what I was missing was the emotional component of how that was being received. So in some of the work that you're doing since, and so um, you know, I know that you're doing a lot with uh, organizational development, organizational yeah. design, really trying to interrupt systems at an organizational level. 
How are you drawing on some of that experience to, I, I think you've given us multiple themes around being appreciative of the culture. Mm-hmm. Also like some of these, again, thank you for using the polarity language. Mm-hmm. Some, how are we balancing some of these? What feel like contradictions into a both and type of thinking? So how's that showing up in the work that you're doing now? So the, the great thing about the work I'm doing now is that I, I feel like for the first time in my entire life, I'm doing the work that I was destined to do. So imagine that I spent 20 years in the military serving and I never really felt like I was where I was supposed to be. So there's a there's an interesting, you know, self-examination that comes with that as well. I think the thing that resonates with me most deeply in the work that I'm doing now is that I am able to give people tools that they can embrace and they don't have to feel like they have to reject outright in order to be successful. So for me, the emotional intelligence aspect of this and the brain science piece, the neuroscience piece, that is fundamental. And so I am constantly trying to get the word out to people about you know, how our brains are wired and how we have this amygdala and it's a holdover from the dinosaur ages. But the point is, if you understand that's how our brains are wired, you can take actions to prevent people from feeling alarmed and threatened. And so really that's the most important part of this work. And what, what would be some recommendations or things from your experience when you're talking about heightening somebody's awareness, specifically, I think, around that threat response yeah. that can manifest itself in multiple ways? Some people avoid, some people are combative. Yeah. Yeah. What would be some of the patterns that we might see if we're thinking about our relationships with our managers, with our peers, or just what we might be seeing happening in an organization? So this is the aspect of coaching that I love. The idea that was revelatory to me was understanding that we are who we are today because we have this thing uh, a professor of mine at Georgetown called our tail. And it's all of our experiences leading up to today are sort of propelling us forward. And until we understand and really have contended with how those pieces of our tail have shaped who we are and how we show up, then there's no change that will happen, right? So in coaching, one of the things that's really important to me is helping people identify patterns. And you used that word earlier. And the idea is that when you're having issues at work with coworkers, for example, the first thing people say is, oh, well, they're a difficult person, or, oh, I don't like working with them. What it takes somebody to help them understand is that generally that same dynamic has shown up in other parts of their lives because of something that has happened leading them up to today. And so I I really am fascinated by that aspect of the work that I'm doing now, particularly with the coaching piece, because helping people understand how we bring all of those influences with us and how those impact our interactions with other people, until they understand that, they're not gonna be able to break the patterns and change their behavior. One of the things that's really central, I think, to the book as well is really um, both the idea of being a woman in the Marines, but also being a female Marine. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that intersectionality, I think of identity of both being a Marine, but also being female or being a woman. Right. I'll start maybe this line of questioning with asking like, do you consider yourself a feminist? Do you, how would you sort of identify your prism or your framework for sort of thinking about both that experience and the work that you're doing now? So I think that that's, again, a dynamic that's changed with being able to stand back and reflect, right? So when I was in the Marine Corps, as one of a very small percentage. I mean, you're talking, the percentage of women in the service is literally seven to 8%. So just seven to 8% of the entire service is women. So the problem with that is that when you're one of so few, if you choose to reach back and mentor and you end up identifying yourself as someone who tries to help 
women who are struggling, you get lumped in as a woman who's struggling too. And so we create a culture where we don't have women who are willing to help guide and mentor and shape other women because we don't want to be lumped in with the problem women, right? So the challenge, though, is that at the exact same time, because there are so few of us, every time we are seen, we are seen as women Marines and not just Marines. And so even as you're distancing yourself from other women because you don't want to be lumped in with the women who are struggling, you're still seen first and foremost as a woman Marine and not a Marine. So, you know, trying to balance that is a struggle. And so at no time would I have ever have said while I was in the Marine Corps that I was a feminist. But ultimately, me getting fired for taking a stand on the gender bias that I saw at Paris Island, I mean, ultimately, that is a sign first and foremost of someone who is a feminist, Right. So um, I think my perspective has grown and it's matured over time as I have grown and matured, but uh, a lot of that's shaped by the culture that you have to exist in. One of the things that you know is very prevalent in the book is you're talking um, very much about what it means to be a woman in the Marines and what that culture within a culture, so the, yeah. the subculture here and what that looks like or how you experience that. One of the things that I found interesting, both as you're sort of trying to buck a system that is very patriarchal and really find a place of that identity of what it means to be a woman Marine. There was also one of the voices that was pretty prevalent within the book is that of your partner, Joe, right. who is a man. Right. Um, or I, I assume, correct me if, yes, if he, he identifies differently. Yeah. To the point where there were even elements where you would describe an experience or describe your reaction to something. And almost in the very next line, there was an element of like, well, Joe agrees with me, or Joe thinks this too, or Joe agrees with my assessment. There was also two chapters of the book, which are Joe's voice, where he's basically saying like, hey, Kate's not crazy. This is yeah. the thing that's happening. Right. Um, I so, am crazy. But yeah. <laughs> in a good way. So, some other data points, just in terms of the literary style of the book, multiple chapters sort of open up with a letter that you received, mm -hmm. I think, after you were fired. Yeah. What I noticed is seven out of those 10 letters were written by people that I would identify as men, mm -hmm. just by their names. So my question is around, even though you're trying to buck a system of patriarchy, you're really trying to assert yourself as the strong woman leader, there's still this element, or could be perceived as an element, of getting validation from a man or a man saying, mm -hmm. yes, I agree. Mm -hmm. So as I'm maybe describing that, what's your reaction to it? Or what? how do you feel like those voices sort of weave in, maybe in maybe not as validation, but as an ally? Mm -hmm. um, or what are some maybe some thoughts that are coming up for you? Well, I think part of that is strictly the numbers. And I'm sure that there is a similar dynamic in some parts of Amazon in that when there are so few, you have to find allies who will help you see reality and will help cheer you on when you're struggling and who will help propel you forward because it comes down to power. So as one of very few women in the Marine Corps, even though I was a leader throughout my time in the Marine Corps, there were very few positions that I held where I actually had the power ne necessary to shape the future. I could change things locally, but that did not mean that I was capable of changing the culture. And so it is really important to look at the context and look at the culture and see how you can identify people who will help you get to where you need to go. And part of that is by having mentors, part of it's by having allies. So you're right in that I relied on my husband as my partner when I was going through the most insane experience of my life. 
but the interesting thing about Joe is that he was also in the Marines and he was also an infantry officer before he became involved in public relations. And so what he had been exposed to was sort of the underbelly of the Marine Corps when it comes to how gender is viewed. So just like in the corporate world, we see there are certain areas where women are um, represented in larger numbers at sort of the sub-managerial level, but not at the executive level. That was the Marine Corps culture. And so because he had been in the infantry, which is until three or four years ago, was all men all the time, he was able to provide a context that I would not otherwise have been privy to. I sort of saw it on the periphery, but I was never at the heart of it. But he was a member and he could verify, yeah, you're not crazy. These are issues, this is the culture. So that was really important and it helped me maintain my sanity in a really difficult time. So I hope that helps answer that question. One of the, one of the things that I'm thinking of is, um, so if we you know, maybe pivoted this conversation a little bit about like what does good allyship look like, one of the things that's animating my thinking as you're talking about, uh, about this is that maybe part of that is giving a frame of reference or a context of a group that, um, you might be trying to buck, but you also might never be a part of in the sense that you you will never you will not be a man unless you choose to right. to, to do that, right? Um, so thinking about maybe that being I, I'm having my own reflection of like how do I best be an ally? Is it by giving better context of what's going on organizationally, or what what does it mean to be in a place of male privilege and how to how to help somebody else navigate that? But can you speak to a little bit more what you might view as the appropriate level of allyship or what would have been most helpful to you in addition to what you received? For me, it's the sanity check that comes with being able to talk to someone who you trust and have them acknowledge that there might be merit to what you're saying. It doesn't mean that everything I ever told Joe about my experiences was accurate, but it absolutely meant that when I needed him to weigh in on what he saw in terms of the culture and the broader context, that I was able to do that in a way where I felt like I trusted him, I felt like he wouldn't violate the sanctity of our discussions, and he would help me navigate because he would help me see things in myself that I don't see. Because we go around in this world with blinders on 90% of the time. So having someone look at me as if they were a mirror and show me how I might be showing up to others, that was really important. There were many times where Joe would sort of talk me off the ledge and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not sure if that's the way you want to do that. So for me, it's about creating that environment where you can have those discussions, be honest with the person, and provide sort of a feedback loop that works both ways so that you can help that person manage the situation that they're in. That's really, really important is understanding it as a member of a dominant group one of your roles as a leader is to look at situations from the viewpoint of others, but also to provide them the context that you have because you're in the majority group. Appreciate that, especially that I think the element of shared learning, shared knowledge um, that some people just might not have access to, and how can you foster that? So right. appreciate that. So thinking about the title of the book, so there's sort of that the book is you know a, maybe an expose or diving deeper into the reality of what it means to be a female Marine, but there's also fight like a girl, which to me has been endeared to my heart as a very positive term in the way that you're using it. So for you, when you say to somebody, fight like a girl, what do you mean? I have to be honest with you, Matt. I hated that title. Okay. I have to be completely honest with you. I knew nothing about publishing a book. And so I worked with a very small publishing company and they had a 
cadre of people who basically vetted titles for the book. I would never have picked Fight Like a Girl because I don't enjoy hearing women, and my Marines and my recruits were all women. I don't enjoy having women characterized as girls. The only saving grace for me when they told us this is the book title that we think will resonate with uh, the people who want to read it, the only thing that saved me was reflecting back on the commercial that I used to show. It was an always Super Bowl commercial that was basically entitled Run Like a Girl. And I used to show that commercial to both my Marines and my recruits to let them know that this was the environment where they were going to have the freedom to excel in ways that they may not have had the freedom to do before. So that was the only way that I could feel good about using the word girl in the title. Now I embrace it, but it was definitely not the title that I would have selected as the feminist for the book. So if we change the title to Fight Like a Woman. I would what, love it. What, I, I would be all the, about it. Yeah, absolutely. What does that mean? So what are the characteristics of that? Wow. So I think first and foremost, understanding that we have a point of view that is valuable for dominant groups to know about. And I think all too often members of minority groups, including women, are pressured to be silent about things that are fundamentally organizationally considered flaws, and that's dangerous, right? Anytime you have a homogenous group of people making decisions without considering the other perspectives, that's when bad decisions are made. So I think first and foremost, it, it's making women understand that they can be themselves, they can be authentic, but they can also make their perspectives known. And those uh, perspectives are incredibly valuable to the broader context and the larger culture. Thank you. So walk us through really quickly what you might describe as like the the straw that broke the camel's back, what ultimately got you um, Whew, fired? dismissed. From, <laughs> no, uh, I was from fired. <laughs> Just walk us through really, really briefly the the story there. Wow, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back. There were so many interactions with my boss that were problematic, but really the biggest straw that broke the camel's back had to do with the ten percent of my Marines who, again, had, were very senior and had been at the unit for a long time before I got there who were unhappy because of the changes that we were making. Now, granted, 90% of the Marines there, I had collaborated with them and, and we had had meetings where we talked about what their thoughts were about how we were gonna make changes and they had bought off. We wouldn't have been able to make the changes and be so successful had they not shaped the strategy. But there literally were 10% of the females who worked within the battalion who were very unhappy. And unfortunately, because of the fractious relationship that I had with my boss, who was looking for any opportunity to get rid of me that he could, they would go around me straight to him to complain about me, saying I was too hard on them, my standards were too high, uh, that they couldn't talk to me. So that 10% really shaped the perspectives of the leaders over my boss. And so really that was the challenge that I had. I had, I had lost the ability to positively influence them because they didn't feel like I cared about them. And that's the emotional intelligence piece that I understand now that I was missing. Were you completely unaware of that? So had they addressed those issues with you one-on-one -on -one, or were you sort of oblivious to maybe that's how you were being perceived or that's what their reaction was? So my naivety was in assuming that because we were seeing these historic changes and the amazing progress in improving the performance of the recruits, my naivety was in thinking that that was a sign that everybody had bought off. 
And the challenge that I was working with was that because the Marines didn't feel comfortable talking to me directly, because I was being that strong woman with no weakness, the fact that they were going straight to my boss and feeding him information that, that wasn't accurate basically negated my ability to sort of interrupt that cycle. And by the time I really became aware of it, it was too far gone because by that time, the head of the Marine Corps, the commandant, he was already aware that, you know, I was an abusive leader. How have you sort of transitioned? And this is coming from somebody who knows you fairly well. Yeah. So, um, and I know that today you would definitely say that vulnerability is a strength. So where would yeah, that come wow. from? And how, do, how have you made that transition? So gosh, this is the biggest takeaway, I think, for me as a leader and what I try to help others understand is that being vulnerable and acknowledging that we make mistakes is a way to connect people. Because when others perceive us as being invulnerable and, and incapable of making mistakes, there is a perception by those individuals that if I admit a failure, I'm gonna be looked upon as a failure. So really understanding, this is the brain science behind change, right? Understanding how we're wired to look for threats and understanding how people's amygdalas get hijacked. Learning about that and understanding how I was setting off amygdalas at Paris Island, that was foundational for me. So really I, I discovered the hard way that being vulnerable is not about showing a weakness, it's about acknowledging that you're human so that other people feel like they can connect with you when they have problems, because you have problems too. A quote from the book, so this is actually coming from a letter that you wrote to the ladies that you were leading, yeah. um, basically upon your exit, um, right. some advice that you gave to them, and this is what you said. Demand your seat at the table, because no one is ever going to give it to you, and you've done more than anyone ever thought you could, certainly more than headquarters Marine Corps thought you could. So as you hear that now, and you think about that experience, um, what recommendations would you give to the listening audience? You know, there's this idea that if women lean in, that's enough. And I, I argue with that. I, I don't believe that just leaning in is enough. It's about not only leaning in, but it's about showing your worth, which was really the part about earning your seat at the table that was so important to me. But it's also about what we talked about earlier, and that is you have to understand your organization and your culture, and then look at yourself and see how maybe you're not fitting, and ask yourself, you know, is this organization commensurate with my values, or is there a gap there? Is there something that I can do in my approach to manage the culture and fit within the culture that fits with my values, or am I not a good fit? And I think that that's part of the challenge of being a woman in a male-dominant organization. You have to be willing to see it's not enough to lean in. You have to take sort of a variety of approaches. You have to have male allies. You have to be able to say when you need help. You have to have boundaries. You have to be willing to know what your values are and shape your work and communicate with the people who are leading you so that they understand those are values and that you have boundaries for your own sake and the sake of others. I really appreciate the the new learnings and insight that you've given me during the conversation. So maybe wrap up for us. I would, I'd like to hear maybe from you as we've had this conversation, and hopefully something that I've asked or said has made you think about something in a different way, but what's sort of top of mind for you or the thing that you're interested or eager to explore in your own self-discovery, in your own journey, kind of walking away from this conversation? Gosh, one of the things that you and I briefly talked about before we even came into this discussion was this idea of sort of the hidden assumptions that we all have that prevent us from 
achieving success in the areas that we agree to. So as a coach, it's really important for me when someone says, you know, I want to achieve this, but over six months to a year, they're not able to achieve that. It's really important to help people understand how sometimes we limit ourselves by having hidden assumptions because we don't necessarily have the faith in ourselves or we don't see how our tails are preventing us from making a clean break to move forward. So really this whole idea of identifying hidden assumptions and then questioning those in a respectful and compassionate way, that's really, really important and intriguing to me right now. Appreciate that. Yeah. All right, so we have time for maybe two or three questions from those who are here with us. And I always say, thanks to the Marine Corps, my life is an open book, so ask anything. <laughs> I'm here for you. Thank you for being here. Thank and you. And being so honest and vulnerable. Uh, getting fired is an incredibly difficult experience, and the, behind that, having success behind that requires resiliency. How did you get through that experience, and what made you continue forward despite uh, perhaps your own confidence blow? Wow, I really appreciate that. It's such a good question. So I have to tell you, I, I'm lucky to be on the planet right now. So when I got fired, I wasn't just fired. Most commanders, when they're fired, the Marine Corps puts out a one-paragraph statement, and it says, you know, uh, lost trust and confidence in their ability to lead. And for whatever reason, when I was fired, the Marine Corps actually leaked an investigation to the media so I was not only fired, when I got home the next day, I woke up on the New York Times, you know, in the New York Times. And, and the investigation for which I was never interviewed is living in perpetuity on the website, on the internet. So I legitimately wanted to kill myself when that happened. Because you have to imagine, you know, my whole identity as a human being in my professional world was wrapped up with this idea of being a Marine, despite the fact that I never really fit in as a Marine, right? So I'm lucky to be here because I had people like Chris and Brian, our friends, um, my husband, Joe, my, my parents, you know, I had people who had basically been with me for forever, who knew who I was at my core, and were able to tell me, that I wasn't the person as I was portrayed by the Marine Corps. So I'm really lucky to be here. Um, for me, being able to share that information with others is a way to, it's almost like a form of penance. That's the Catholic in me talking. But it's almost like a form of penance, right? I feel like in order to make up for any damage that I might have caused, because I didn't understand emotional intelligence, I feel like if I can feed it forward by helping people learn from my mistakes, then that's really what I was put on the planet to do. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, thank you for being here. Thanks thank for you. sharing. Uh, my question is, um, just being unapologetically you, <laughs> isn't just okay to be unapologetically you? Like, why? I feel constantly that, okay, this is great, and to achieve the next step, you need to do this, 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 mm. whereas... I need to change myself to do that, and maybe I'm not okay with that. Like I don't want. I'm empathetic. I'm I'm nice in Amazon words, maybe <laughs> not aggressive, but I'm assertive, and I get work done. Sure. Why do I need to change to fit a certain bill to see that progress? And if I'm not getting progress by being me, I'm fine. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the dilemma of people who are in the same state? Such a good question. So I think part of it is knowing what your values are. If your values are being compassionate 
and being kind, then every message that you are communicating with other people will be delivered through that megaphone, if you will. No matter how loud you are, no matter how quiet you are, people will know that that is authentically you. So you don't have to change. The challenge is when you're in an organization where the qualities the organization touts as being good qualities don't resonate with your values. That's where the the discord comes in. So I think that I, I applaud you because you already know who you are. And this is an organization where you probably don't feel that there's discord. I can't say that that's true for all people. And I, I certainly can't say that that's true for all minority groups in every line of business. Does that help? Yeah, yeah good question. So really appreciate the talk. It's Thank fantastic uh, perspective. As a father of two daughters, trying to raise them to be very strong, bold, empowered leaders. Love it. Um, and one of the things we do talk about in our household is about it's okay to be a feminist. But I heard you earlier talking about how you were fired for being a feminist as almost that's inherently a bad thing. Mm. Um, and I was just curious if your perspective is around balance with the feminism or if you were uh, saying that the Marine Corps sees feminism as That's a exactly right. So it's the difference between understanding, again, the context. In the context of the Marine Corps, where women are such a small minority, it is dangerous to speak out as a feminist. Um, and the, the only beauty for me is that when I got fired, it was kind of like, well, the gloves are off now, you know, because these are, these are issues that I feel are matters of principle, right? And I had, finally, I had the freedom to say what I knew was right to me. So I think it's really about understanding kind of the cultural limitations that we face and then finding a way to be the megaphone in a way that doesn't set off the alarm bells that I obviously did. So I can help you learn a lot of lessons about what not to do, and that's kind of what I'm here for. If I can add something really quickly to that, I think that we all sort of struggle with balancing the ability to be an agent of change mm -hmm. compared to when are we complicit in something. And that's probably something yes. that, Kate, I've gone through of thinking about, yeah. I really want to disrupt this system or I really want to do this thing differently. Um, I'm here trying to fight the good fight, yep. but at one point do I actually become complicit in the bad behavior that's happening yes. because I'm there? Yes, so. absolutely. I mean, that's the Marine Corps, right, in a nutshell. So talk about being complicit. When you're a very small minority and you know what you need to do to get ahead, and that is emulate male leaders, you become complicit in just trying to be successful. And that, for me, was heartbreaking because— I recognized at that point that for, you know, 20 years that I was in the Marine Corps, about 15 by that time actually, I had been letting down all of the women who I worked with because I had to be complicit in my mind to get ahead. That was hard. Any other question right here? Yeah. Um, so you mentioned helping people recognize um, their patterns. Mm -hmm. How do you do that tactfully with, especially people who are difficult to work with or in your opinion are difficult to work with? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, sometimes it comes down to saying, where else has that shown up in your life? Tell me about where else you've seen this affect your relationships. And you'll be surprised when you don't ask why, which is something that coaches are trained not to do. Why is a judgment-laden question? Because when you ask someone, well, why did you do that? Or why did you do it that way? Basically, you're implying that they were wrong, which sets off our brains, right? Those alarms in our brains. So it's a matter of being able to ask open-ended questions. And you'd be surprised what people will come up with. Because we hide that stuff from ourselves. When someone opens you up to that conversation in a way that makes you feel 
that it's a trusted environment, you will be surprised about what they already know about themselves that they refuse to see in large settings? It's a great question. Hi, thanks for coming. And thank you for your sacrifice as a veteran. Um, I'm curious, is there a silver lining with the military? Do you feel like anything's changing because of what you went through and the voice you provided to that situation? I absolutely. So the silver lining is that for the I, I, we didn't really talk about this, but when I talked about Marine Corps boot camp being the segregated, the only segregated boot camp, which historically has demonstrated the model doesn't work because there was all this data showing women weren't succeeding. For the first time this year, the Marine Corps started integrating male and female recruits in the same company, and I can honestly say that that is because I was able to have the freedom after I got fired to write about it, to speak about it, to show the data related to it. So yeah, things are changing, but just as with any large organization, culture is a very slow moving animal. And so the more people can have forums like this where you're sharing ideas and where you're finding support, and the more you can identify allies, the easier it will be to sort of shape the culture along the way. So I have a question. You mentioned briefly that while mentoring a struggling group, you could be perceived as also being struggling. Could you comment a bit more about that? Yes. What we can actually do moving ahead in terms of for mentorship? Well, I mean, I think that if, if you are in an organization that prides itself on certain behaviors, if you don't fit that mold, then it's hard, right? So when you are surrounded by other people within your same minority group, you don't want to see yourself lumped in with people who are struggling. And I think for me, and I'm saying you, but really I'm talking about me, that was the struggle I had. Instead of helping the women who were struggling, I distanced myself from them so that I wouldn't be lumped in in that category. Because it, you know there were so few of us that if you were one woman Marine, you represented all women Marines. The challenge I think I would levy to you is that you have to find allies who are from dominant groups you can partner with to amplify your voice, to amplify your message, and to show other members of the dominant group that there's credibility to what you're saying. If you can do that, you're gonna be way, way more organizationally savvy than I ever was. I obviously, I got an F in that class. So please don't do what I did. So. What would be your message or advice for guys in a male-dominated industry or organization? And if you could go back uh, to your time in the Marine Corps, would you have done anything differently? I absolutely would have done things differently. I'll start with that. So first and foremost, I feel like I failed my Marines who were struggling because they didn't feel like they could come to me and tell me they were struggling, right? So by projecting this, like, I'm strong, I don't have any problems, basically what I was showing to them is that they had to be super strong too. And if they had problems, then it was a weakness on their part. So that's first and foremost what I would change. I have to applaud the men who are here today because there's a reason that you're here, right? Um, And I think it's because you all want to be part of a positive change, right? So I think the most important thing you can do is take away this idea that as a leader, no matter what your role, whether it's informal leadership or formal leadership, you have a job to do in terms of perspective taking. And perspective taking is as simple as asking someone who doesn't look like you what their perspective is on a problem that you're experiencing. 
And I think if we all did, and this is talking about the human race in general, but I think if we just all did a better job of perspective taking, we would be more connected and we would be more committed to making positive change no matter where we are in the world. Thanks everybody for uh, your uh, attendance today and big thanks to Kate for Thank uh, spending her time Good with for us. Good to today. see you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you.